This is your life, episode 67. Hello and welcome to this episode of This Is Your Life. My name is Michael Hyatt and this is the podcast dedicated to intentional leadership. My goal is to help you live with more passion, work with greater focus, and lead with extraordinary influence. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about how to have better dinner conversations, or if you want to think of it as how to be a better conversationalist, because the truth is that regardless of the situation you're in, whether it's at dinner or in a professional context, or just meeting somebody for the first time, having some basic conversational skills can really serve you well. It can help you learn about that other person, help get your point of view across, and help you really engage and create trust. So in this episode, we'll be talking about that. But first, this podcast is brought to you by Platform University, an online membership site for helping you launch your personal platform or take it to the next level. And you can find out more at platformuniversity.com. And by the way, if you're already a member, be sure and check out the new masterclass with Pat Flynn, which we released last week. It's called The Freedom and Potential of Passive Income, and it's already gotten rave reviews from our members. But if you've ever thought about monetizing your platform or your blog or uh, being able to earn an income or even some part-time income, this masterclass is for you because Pat covers it all and he talks about doing it with integrity, but it's a great class. So again, check us out at platformuniversity.com. Last week, I told you I was uh, changing the format of this podcast to a more unstructured, unscripted format, and that's exactly what I'm doing. And I ask you all to give me some comments via a survey that I put on SurveyMonkey, and I wanted to share those results with you. So one of the first questions I ask, I actually ask a couple questions, how long you'd been listening to me, but the second question was, do you like the unscripted format? Well, 55% of you said yes, 37.5% that couldn't tell the difference, which uh, I thought was kind of funny because my wife said the same thing. You know, she said it's not that different. So the truth is that all the preparation I was doing to get to that point really wasn't worth it. It's kind of what Tim Ferriss talks about when he talks about minimum effective dose. And that is, uh, for example, when you're boiling water, you don't need to get it to 213 degrees because water boils at 212 degrees. So any effort to get uh, water hotter than 212 degrees for the purpose of boiling it is a complete waste of energy. And same thing, I think, with my podcast. Uh, If that many people couldn't tell the difference, then I probably don't need to be preparing that much. But about 7.5% said uh, that they didn't like it. And most of them were concerned, actually, about that it would be too kind of loosey-goosey and there wouldn't be any takeaway and they like the bullet points and they like the enumerated lists and they like being able to have something that's a little more structured so they've got something they can take away. Well, I don't plan to lose that. It's going to be unscripted, but it won't be unstructured. There'll still be some structure to it, but the way I'm preparing is I'm simply giving my points, uh, the major points that I want to make, and then I'm going to talk around those pretty much off the top of my head. 
The third question I asked, though, was, do you like the idea of being able to ask questions on any topic? And as you may recall before, if you're a regular listener, I would have the questions pertaining to that particular topic and would only accept questions about that topic, which was fine if you had a question about that topic. But I get questions every week via email and via voicemail where people just have a question that's completely unrelated to the topic. And up until this point, I've had no real venue to answer those. There are too many of them for me to answer individually. So this gives me a way to answer them in a way that hopefully uh, will help other people as well. Because usually when one person has a question, other people have it. And if I can answer it in a thoughtful way, then it'll help more than just the person who initially asked it. So we'll see that at the end of the podcast today where I'll attempt to do just that. 10% of the people that responded to that question said they weren't sure yet. They kind of wanted to see how it goes. One person uh, said they liked it in the current format because it made kind of a nice, neat package. So I would present the content, then I would have questions about it. But uh, there were people who said, 7.5% of the people said they didn't like the idea. And, you know, I think that's a a real minority. I want to respect that and listen to it, but uh, I don't think that's a factor. I think it's a good idea and we're going to certainly try it. We'll see how it goes. Well, last night, just spontaneously, we had some friends give us a call and and ask if we wanted to go see the movie Gravity. And our life is so planned and programmed that when we get an opportunity to do something spontaneously, we love it. It's difficult to get on our calendar, but if you call up and we're free, we'll do it. So we decided to go to the movie Gravity, which by the way, this isn't a movie review, but I was really excited about that movie because I knew that from a technical standpoint, There was a ton of stuff that they had to do that had never been done before. This is the story of a couple of astronauts who get lost in space is the wrong word, but they come untethered from their spacecraft and they're drifting in space. And the whole goal is for them to get back to Earth safely. But it's very dramatic, very tense. We were on the edge of our seats uh, the whole time. I won't spoil it for you, but I would say that while it was technically brilliant, it was emotionally wanting. I just didn't connect with the characters. But regardless, the point I wanted to make is that after the movie, we went over to our friend's house just, again, for an impromptu dinner, and we kind of rounded up a couple of sandwiches and had a salad. And we had this amazing conversation. And this is my, my, really my favorite thing to do. It's really a pastime. I don't know if you'd call it a hobby. But one of my favorite things to do is to engage people in conversation. I don't care if it's people I disagree with or people I agree with, but I just love exploring other people's personalities and what they think about things. And Gail and I have made a practice of this over the years, and and our kids have actually become quite good at it as well. And it's been sort of a a hobby of the entire families when we would have people over for dinner is to engage those people in thoughtful conversations. So what I wanted to share with you in this podcast episode is uh, 10 suggestions for uh, making your conversations more engaging, for engaging in better dinnertime conversations. And so let me just go through those one at a time and give you a few comments about it. I think, first of all, if you want to have better conversation around your dinner table, if you want your family members to look forward to it, if you want to make friendships that will last a lifetime, get more intentional. That's really suggestion number one. Be intentional about it. Great conversations occasionally happen by accident, but they don't happen regularly by accident. You've got to be intentional in a Of course, I've said for years, the theme of my blog is intentional leadership. And I do think you have to be intentional in your life and in your business and in every aspect of your life if you're really going to get sort of the maximum effect out of it. And I think it's true with conversations too. Be intentional. 
to approach that dinner conversation, having company over or going on that that business luncheon of just saying, you know what, I'm going to cause a great conversation. I'm not just going to be passive. I'm not just going to hope that it happens, but I'm going to set out with the intention of making it happen. Just that intention sets a lot of cool things in motion. Suggestion number two, choose a conducive environment. I mean, the fact is there are some restaurants out there, there are some environments that just aren't conducive. We've gotten to the place where we really, really avoid loud restaurants. That's like the first thing we we look for. We love great food. And I personally believe that food has a uh, serves a sacramental purpose in terms of bringing us close to other people and bringing us close even to God uh, as we share a meal together. But I think it's got to be the right environment. And sometimes you go to a restaurant, and I don't know what it is if they expect you not to talk. Maybe it's my age. I don't know. But um, I can't hear in those environments as well as I should. And I have to strain, and frankly, and maybe this is an introvert thing, it stresses me out. And so I'm looking for a restaurant that first and foremost has the right uh, ambiance, that is quiet, that I can hear the other person, that I'm not preoccupied or distracted by the environment. And that's a key thing, I think, to look for. Yeah, you want great food. Uh, you want at least food that you enjoy, but you've got to have the right conducive environment. That's why with increasing frequency, when we go out to dinner with people, we invite them over. And Gail's not that crazy about cooking, to be honest, and I'm not either. So sometimes we'll go out to a restaurant and we'll order out, and we'll bring it home and we'll serve it up uh, there at the house. But at least in our home, we can control the environment. And so we love to do that. The third suggestion I would make, and I actually got this from a dinner party at Lucy Swindoll's, a dear friend of mine in Dallas, Texas, and she began the dinner conversation by standing up and she prayed over the meal and then she said, I only have one request tonight, I only have one rule, and it's this, that there be one conversation and only one conversation. I want to tell you, that was a transformative thing. We had practiced that but not really intentionally or not consciously. We weren't aware that that was um, a suggestion that would really help with our dinnertime conversations or in any conversation. But one of the things that sabotages great conversations is when you have people talking over the top of one another or these side conversations that end up being really distracting to the main conversation. And I would just encourage you to try this. And we practice this at my home. We say this to people when they come into our home. We're going to have one conversation, and everybody's intent on that conversation. We listen better, we engage more, and it becomes a richer, deeper conversation when we observe that rule or that suggestion. Fourth suggestion I would make is use open-ended questions. You've got to get highly skilled. You've got to get great at being able to ask great questions. And not everybody's good at this. You know, some people love to give answers. They love to talk about themselves, but they're not so great at turning the tables. And this is the secret really to being a great conversationalist is being able to ask great open-ended questions because people love to talk about themselves. And if you can develop the art of asking these questions and getting people to talk about themselves, they have a great time. You learn about them. You find points of connection And again, it becomes a deeper, fuller conversation. What do I mean by open-ended questions? Let me give you a couple of examples. And I did jot these down before I got on uh, the podcast just so I'd have some good examples. But here's one. What is your idea of a perfect vacation? Great question to ask because you learn a lot about people, what their values are, 
the kind of environments they like, all the rest. Another question. If you could design your ideal job, what would it look like? And we've spent, you know, a couple of hours talking about that question before at our dinner table. Or what is the best book you've read in the last 12 months and why? You got to be careful about that one because you don't want to embarrass non-readers. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably are a reader, and so that's not a problem, but I would be just a little sensitive to that. Another question, what's the most important lesson you learned from your father? Uh, that really forces people to think and to distill it and to really appreciate their father. Another one, what is your favorite, uh, what's your favorite thing about your spouse? Um, I love that, again, because it focuses the conversation positively. You know, people often get together and like to complain about their spouses, but to talk about what they appreciate about their spouse really connects them to what their first love was. It's, it's a great question. Here's another one. If you were by yourself and could listen to any music you want, what would it be? Last night when we were with Ian and Ann, they were sharing all kinds of songs and albums off their playlist, and we were jotting notes as, as quickly as, as we could. Um, Ian's introduced me to some great choral composers like Eric Whitaker and uh, Morton Larsden and people that we really love today. But those came out of conversations around a dinner table. Another one, if you could spend a day with anyone on the planet, who would it be? That really forces you to narrow it down. Or what's it like to be your friend or to be married to you? That's a tough one if you don't know the people very well, but it's a great question if you want to go go deeper. So anyway, those are just some examples of open-ended questions. You'll come up with your own. These are not things I, I usually go into the dinner conversation with. You know, it's not like I whip out a list and, and start reading it. No, I just want to be aware of open-ended conversations and, and be naturally curious. What are you really interested in? You know, what fascinates you about that person? Allow yourself to be fascinated with that person or that couple and just uh, ask the questions that naturally occur to you. This suggestion, ask a second question. This is what separates uh, the men from the boys, the ladies from the girls. This is the kind of question that takes you deeper into the conversation. And most of us are tempted after we ask a question and we hear the answer to then answer the question ourselves, right? It's like a ping pong match and that's fair and that's equitable. But if you really want to go deep, ask the second question. And here's some examples of what I mean by that. Like, well, how did it feel when that happened? You know, I'm, I'm going different. I'm, I'm peeling the uh, onion back another layer. Uh, or another one, another example. Can you elaborate on that? Or say more about that. You know, just encourage them to go deeper. Or why do you think that's important to you? Or do you think you would have answered the same way five years ago? Or, wow, what emotion do you feel when you describe that? This is a way to get, uh, to drive the conversation deeper and to get under the hood, so to speak, and really find out what makes people tick and really grow um, in intimacy. So ask that second question. Sixth suggestion, draw out the quieter guests. Now, we don't like big dinner parties. You know, Gail probably does more than I do just because she's an extrovert and she flourishes in that environment. I don't enjoy it so much. I want to go deep with a few. And that doesn't make me better as an introvert. It just makes me different. But that's one of the things I bring to the relationship is I can focus on a few and, and drive it deeper. But there are often people that are in the conversation that are very quiet. They're great listeners, but they don't really want to contribute much. And it maybe doesn't occur to them to, to contribute, or maybe they're shy, or who knows. But I think if you're facilitating the conversation, if you're the host or the hostess, then you can draw those people out. And I mean, it's as simple as saying, what do you think, Ann? 
or has that ever happened to you, Anne, or whoever the person is, but to, to literally call on them and draw them out and to help them kind of get started. So draw out the quieter guests. Seventh suggestion. This is a pet peeve. Don't one-up your guests. You know what I'm talking about. Brian Regan has an entire comedy sketch on this where he calls, uh, what does he call this? Something about a walk on the moon. Uh, It's like his signature comedy routine. But the idea is you're at a dinner club and you make the mistake of talking about getting your wisdom teeth removed. And whether you say you had two wisdom teeth removed or four wisdom teeth removed or six, there's always somebody there, the me monster, that wants to one-up you, you know, who always says, well, you think that's bad. You know, I had eight impacted wisdom teeth that had to be removed or whatever. And so you don't want to be that guy. And uh, he talks about it in the in the bit. You've got to see it. Search for it on YouTube. But uh, he talks about, well, what if you were the guy, the first guy to walk on the moon? And no matter what anybody said at the dinner party, you could say, yeah, well, there was that time I walked on the moon. I mean, nobody can trump that. That's like the ultimate experience. But don't be that guy. Don't feel like you've got to be the person who talks about the people, the famous people he knows, or the important books, obscure books that he's read, or the music that's really exotic. You know, just be careful about that. You want to be inclusive. You don't want to make people feel uh, dumb or uninformed or not with it. You know, you want them to feel like they're connected and, and part of it. So don't one up your guests. Eighth suggestion, and this is a simple thing, but pay attention to people's physical needs. When I have people over for dinner, one of the things I want to be alert to is does their beverage need refilled or do they need seconds or how can I attend to their physical needs so they don't get distracted and so that they can fully participate in the conversation? Because if I'm a good host or if you're a good hostess, you can set the conversation in motion and it has a life of its own and then you can serve the people that you're with. So I just try to be alert to that. I don't I don't want people to be thirsty and go wanting or to really uh, want seconds or need a napkin or a clean fork, whatever it is, you know, I want to be alert to that so that I can serve them. Ninth suggestion, and this probably goes without saying, but you'd be surprised how many people don't practice this. Do more listening than talking. It's kind of the classic adage of this is why God gave you two ears and one mouth. That's really kind of the proportion it ought to be. We had a uh, couple over several months ago and we were really excited about this. We'd, we'd spent time with them before. And the husband just talked incessantly. He just went on and on and on. I mean, he didn't come up for air. He didn't ask us one single question. It was all about him. And honestly, it was boring. I could not wait for them. And I hate to say this, but I could not wait for them to leave because there was no engagement. You know, it was just a monologue on his part. And so you've got to develop self-awareness. You've got to be uh, conscious of the amount of time that you're talking and the amount of time you're listening. And a good conversation should be, and I said it already before, but it should be like a ping pong match where you hit the ball over the net and you give them an opportunity to hit the ball back over the net to you. And a good conversation is like a good ping pong match where it's going back and forth over the net. There's a fair exchange. There's a conversation among all the parties that are present. So do more listening than talking. Then suggestion number 10, affirm people, even if you disagree with them. And it's often the case that we get in conversations, at least the more interesting conversations where we disagree with people. And personally, I don't think that we should fear that. I certainly don't 
just want to associate with people uh, I agree with. I mean, what is there to learn when you do that? I want to associate with people that I that I really disagree with. We've got a friend, for example, uh, that we meet with from time to time who is exactly the opposite from me on the political spectrum. And I won't tell you who's who, but we're complete opposites. Our worldview is different. Our frame of reference is different. Our experience is different. Our needs are different. The people we associate with are different. I love talking to him about politics because I learn something every time. And so rather than, you know, and this so often happens, and I've been guilty of this myself, where I'm trying to prove a point and I'm not really listening and I'm not asking questions and I'm not even listening to him, I'm just trying to make a point. I don't do that. Instead, I want to ask the question, say, that's fascinating to me. Why is it that you believe that? Or what is it in your experience that makes you resonate with that so much? And so I want to ask those questions and affirm them and to say, wow, well, it's clear that you've thought through this. Um, I'm learning a lot. I mean, this is, this is great. Keep talking. So it doesn't mean we have to compromise our values or compromise our position. And, and I've often said to this person, you know, I really disagree with that. And here's why. And so we can have those conversations and we can disagree without being disagreeable. And I could so go on a rant about this because I think so much of American public discourse has degenerated to shouting and talking over the top of one another and no one is listening to anyone else. I mean, just witness the recent incredible dysfunction in Washington, D.C. right now. I'd be happy to sweep both parties out and start over because nobody's listening to anyone. You know, they, they seem to be talking for the cameras or for the audience that's not present really than seeking to understand first. So those 10 suggestions, I really think they can help you be a better conversationalist, have more enriching conversations around your dinner table and drive you deeper into relationships, which ultimately uh, are the most satisfying things in life. So I hope that's been helpful. I'll be back in a minute with our listener Q&A segment. Welcome back. Uh, I told you that our questions were going to come all over the map this time. And I did have a couple of questions that did come about this topic. And let me say this. I usually only take voicemail questions, but I get a lot of questions. In fact, probably 10 questions to one that come through via email. And we answer those the best we can. I do this with a couple of assistants where I've come up with sort of canned responses in the past. And we've tried to personalize them, but with the volume of questions, we can't do that with every single one. But there are those questions that we never get to. And we just say, you know, we don't have the time and the resources to answer these. I'm going to try to answer some of those here this week as well. So I'm basically not going to have any voicemail questions this week. We'll resume that with next week, but I want to have questions that came in via email. And this one came from Lucy and she asked, she, or she said, I think one of the hardest parts of dinner conversations is having one conversation only. She'd heard me talk about this especially with large groups. How do you feel with being the only person making or starting conversation? Eventually you feel like a moderator at the table. Well, you do. And I think that, you know, it's not true in every case and you have to be careful about not assuming more authority or a role that hasn't been given to you. But if you've invited people to your home, I think serving up a great conversation is at least as important as serving up a great meal. And so you are kind of the moderator. But this is also one of the reasons why we intentionally limit the size of the group. You know, we don't like large dinner parties. You know, we like four people. Another couple is perfect. Sometimes it's helpful in a conversation to have 
four additional people, so a total of six. We found that once we go beyond about eight or for sure 10, it becomes really difficult unless we break it into two tables. So again, all you have to do is be intentional and thoughtful about this. And I think any situation is workable as long as you know the outcome you're after. And most people don't think through that. You know, they just get together. Maybe it's to have food. Maybe it's to have some chit chat. But if you want to drive the conversation deeper, you've got to be more intentional than that. And I think it's possible even in a large group if you break it into tables. And sometimes we've done this at our conferences before where I'll just stand up and say, hey, a couple questions I want you to discuss at dinner. I mean, for sure, get to know each other, be informal. This is nothing formal, but these questions might be fun to discuss around uh, the table together. And we usually sit people in groups of eight. So that's one way to handle it. Hope that's helpful. Brian wrote in and he asked, any suggestions when the people you invite or you have kids that are active during meal times? Well, we have these issues as well because we have so many grandkids. We have eight of them now. So when they're in the room, you know, we don't try to, you know, shush them or tell them that they have to be seen and not heard. We, for one, the older kids, we try to invite in the conversation. This is a great, important skill that your kids need to learn, that your grandkids need to learn. And where are they going to learn that if they're not present in a conversation where it's happening? And so invite them into it. Don't shame them if you know they start a side conversation or something that's a little disruptive, but explain to them what it is you're trying to accomplish and what you're doing. And you could do that offline or even before the guests uh, come over. And there are times when it's really small kids that you can't do that. You're just not going to have a great conversation around the dinner and that dinner table, and that's okay. I know sometimes when we've had a dinner party at the house and there are a few small kids, Gail will take them away or somebody else will take them away and play with them. Or we've hired babysitters. We've done things to engage the kids, put them in the backyard, whatever, so that the adults can have a conversation. But you've got to calibrate your expectations based on the age of the children and not try to to accomplish something at the expense of the children. So I really believe in that. Another question comes from Patricia. She said, how can you teach children to be better conversationalists? And I think first and foremost, it's by modeling. You've got to become a great conversationalist. I have to say this, and I'm just a proud papa, but I have to say with my five daughters, they are brilliant conversationalists. And they have taken it so much further than we ever envisioned it. But it was modeled to them. You know, we tried to do this around our dinner table, and Gail was particularly adept at it. Then the older girls would pick up on it. And so before long, the older girls were teaching the younger girls and everybody learned, but it began with modeling it. You know, it's not putting your kids through a uh, seminar, but I think it's, you know, just demonstrating it, instructing them when necessary, uh, coaching them and giving them lots of practice. In fact, I was asked this question uh, one time by a teacher. They said, you know, this seems like such an important life skill. How could we do a better job in schools of teaching this? And I said, I would lay out the principles. You know, I would figure it out. I mean, if you're teaching, you could use my uh, 10 suggestions that I've given, or you could use something else, but give some instruction on this. This is a critical life skill. Make it fun. Maybe even videotape people having a conversation and, and deconstruct it. Not, by the way, to point out what's wrong, but to affirm what's right. People learn much better when you affirm what's right and say, boy, I really liked it when you asked that second question. That was fantastic. That was so engaging. But to affirm them so that they do it naturally as as time goes on. Another question I got from Larry, and this was about a blog post that I wrote this week. So now not about the conversations, but this was a question about a blog post I wrote called How to Become More Consistent in Your Daily Journaling. And he asked, how does journaling 
fit into your morning routine. And he wanted to know if the sum of my devotional life was that journaling exercise or if it was just a part of my journaling life. And so it was a rather long email. So let me just answer that. First of all, podcast episode 28 is called Become More Productive by Reengineering Your Morning Ritual. And I discussed that in length there. It's been one of my most popular podcasts. And if you're interested in that topic, I would encourage you to listen to that podcast. But in short, here's how I look at it, or here's what my practice has been for a number of years. And that is that my quiet time, the first hour of the day when I awaken is broken into four parts. Part one is what I call silence and solitude. That's for 15 minutes. I'm totally quiet. I'm not praying. Uh, I'm not thinking about what happened the previous day. I'm not thinking about what's on my plate for that day. I'm just trying to be fully present in the moment. I usually drink a cup of coffee and I'm trying to wake up, but I'm trying to be fully present in the moment and just be still. So much of our life is filled with noise and so busy. I just love that first 15-minute period when I can be quiet. It's almost always dark when I wake up, and so it's just a, a wonderful time for me. The second part of my quiet time is prayer. I spend 15 minutes in prayer, and for me, just in the tradition I'm from, uh, we use set prayers or liturgical prayers, but I also pray extemporaneously, but that gives me a track to run on a little bit like the journal template that uh, was this post called How to Become More Consistent in Your Daily Journaling. I have kind of a prayer template. That's what uh, these prayers are for me, but I deviate from them. I get off track and pray extemporaneously too. But in about 15 minutes, I cover what I want to cover and pray about the things that are important to me. The next 15 minutes, I spend reading the Bible. I've practiced this since I was in college. I go through something called the One Year Bible. It's published by Tyndale House Publishers. And I read an Old Testament passage. Then I read a New Testament passage, a portion of a psalm, and a proverb. And that gives me a great balanced diet. It also gives me through the entire Bible uh, in a year. And I can do that in about 15 minutes. Then in the final 15 minutes, I journal. And I'm pretty disciplined about keeping it to 15 minutes. There are some days when I could write for an hour. There are some times when I, I, it's tough. I want to quit after five minutes, but I keep it to about 15 minutes and then I'm done. And that kind of primes the pump for the day. So that's uh, my four-part quiet time framework, if you will. So now it's your turn. So the question I have about meaningful conversations is this. What have you personally found helpful in generating more meaningful conversations. It could be around the dinner table. It could be in a professional context. But what have you learned? Share it with the rest of us. And you can do so by commenting on this episode at michaelhyatt.com slash 67, as in episode 67. Leave us a comment and let all of us learn from what you've learned. I'll be back in a minute with some final announcements. Don't close your Okay, welcome back. Three quick announcements. You've heard me talk about it before. I want to give you another reminder. The Platform Conference is in Dallas, Texas, November 3rd through 5th, 2013. So in less than a month, this is the conference. If you're trying to build a platform, if you're trying to take your platform to the next level so that you can gain the visibility you need to get your message across in today's busy world. Who should attend? Small business owners, business executives, social media managers, authors, speakers, agents, publishers, 
if you're in the publishing world or you're trying to write or trying to publish, you need to come to Platform Conference. Everybody's talking about Platform. This will give you in a condensed three-day period what it would take you uh, months, if not years, to learn on your own. Bloggers and podcasters, mortgage brokers, real estate agents, that's the number, those are the two number one groups that I speak to when I do public speaking. They all want to know how to build a platform. Online marketers, and yes, even pastors and church planters. Everyone in this group needs to get visibility for their message. We've got a terrific lineup of speakers this year. Ken Davis, my business partner, Lisa Turkhurst, Derek Halpern, Jeff Goins, Cliff Ravenscraft, Stu McLaren, Michelle Cachat, Ray Edwards, and Amy Porterfield. Terrific lineup. These are the people that I've brought in that I believe are the world's leading experts on their subject matter areas related to platform building. And the reason I mentioned it to you is because we're still offering a special $200 discount code through October the 18th. You've got to register before October the 18th to get this discount, but the discount code is October, all caps, one word, October. That'll give you $200 off the advertised price. And you can find out more at platformconference.tv, platformconference.tv. And there's a link in the show notes. And I want to mention to you again about WordPress setup. If, if you are building a platform and if you're serious about it, you need your blog to be on WordPress. And what I recommend and what I advocate is a self-hosted WordPress site, which means you have maximum control and you have the maximum number of options to create it the way that you want it. And I can teach you how to set it up in 20 minutes or less than a simple screencast that I've created at michaelhyatt.com slash WordPress setup. It walks you through the process. It's much easier than you think. And it does it in 20 minutes. And I offer also in there an affiliate link for a Bluehost, and that's a hosting company, which allows you to get a special discount. And you can't get this uh, just if you go visit their site. It's only through my affiliate link. If you don't want to do that, it's fine. It does help me. They pay me a commission when you sign up through my affiliate link, but you're not going to pay any more. In fact, you're going to pay less. It's going to be $3.95 a month if you sign up for three years, but it takes basically a dollar off the uh, regularly advertised price. And then finally, my next podcast is going to be about sleep and your productivity, why it's so important and how to get a better night's sleep. It's important to all of us, probably more important than we sometimes recognize. But if you've got a question about that topic or any topic related to personal development, leadership, platform building, publishing, whatever, you can leave a question at michaelhyatt.com slash podcast question. And you can also uh, just put a comment in the comments there too. And I'll try to answer it just as I have in this episode. And by the way, if you leave me a voicemail, I will put a link in the show notes back to your site. So this is a terrific way for you to get some visibility for your site and some additional new traffic from my audience. Well, that's it for this episode of This Is Your Life. If you've enjoyed this show, you can go to the show notes and get the details and the links and the resources and all the rest at michaelhyatt.com slash 67. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful if you would help me get the word out. And you can do that by going to michaelhyatt.com slash love. And that will give you a pre-populated Twitter post that you can share with your followers on Twitter. I'd be grateful also if you'd rate my podcast on iTunes. Those ratings are what drives the visibility of the podcast up so that people who have not discovered it can see it and subscribe to it. So until next time, remember, your life is a gift. Now go make it count. This is your